So like many of you, I am probably in the process of working on certain things, certain goals in 2017. And one of them is that I want to lose weight, okay? Just full transparency, although you see me. Um, if you're here regularly and you're like, yes, he does need to lose a little bit of weight. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I tell myself that. And so as a result of that, I've joined the gym and I've decided I'm going to lose weight. Um, there's something you need to know about me. The, I, I, um, my undergrad was in uh, biology, chemistry, which meant I did a lot of science studies. And the reason I went into the biochemistry was I desired to do infectious diseases. Like since nine years old, I was obsessed with finding cures for diseases. Like as a nine-year-old, I would draw, I was a nerd, I would draw um, viruses and imagine how they spread. And I kind of was born in the 80s, so the HIV was kind of this dominant virus that kind of grabbed the headlines in the day. And I remember as a nine-year-old being like, I'm going to find the cure for AIDS. I'm going to discover it. And I remember reading about it as a nine-year-old, drawing, realizing it was a retrovirus and how it worked and how it infected the host. And I would sit there and imagine how you could, like, sift through the DNA and get it out. I mean, so, like, by the time I got to college, I was com committed and convinced I'm going to design cures for drugs. And I'm an introvert. I just like staying in a lab and doing research and being a nerd and... Um, so I, in the process of that, I became really aware. To this day, I still read regularly scientific journals and articles about current outbreaks around the world. I keep up with what is happening in the microbial world. I am strange, okay? But some of you do that on Pinterest and Instagram with other strange things, so we can't judge me, okay? And, and so the like, reality is that I am what you would call not germophobic, because germophobic means phobia, which is irrational fear. Right? When you say someone has a phobia, it's irrational. I am germ aware. Okay? It means when I walk in a room, I am aware of the germs that are in there. When people want to shake my hand, I'm aware of the fact that they may not wash their hand. And I'm kind of silently computing the amount of microbes that may be about to transfer onto my hand. Okay? I really, it's the craziest thing. When people sneeze, it's like I have this whole dimensional warp that happens, and the world goes in slow motion, and I see it come out, and I see the spray radius. And I'm like, oh, I'm within six feet, backing up, backing up. And so one of the things in joining a gym, my wife said to me, she was like, look, you're, you're busy, and for, for it to work out, you really need to shower at the gym. Like, you're going to need to go to the gym, you're going to have to take your clothes, and you're going to have to shower there. And I'm like, woman, you are out of your mind. Do you know what showers in a gym are like? There is fungus among us everywhere in those things. She's like, Chris, there's no way you're going to be able to, like, lose weight if you're not willing to, like, build this in your schedule. And you're just too busy to go and then come home and wash and then do whatever. And I'm like, okay. So I have this big boy moment, right? I, I go to the gym last week, and I've got a backpack with clothes in it. And I'll, I go to work out, and I'm like, I'm going to shower today. And it's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to get in there. And I got, like, my, like my sandals on because ain't no way I'm stepping into that thing barefooted. Heck no. And so I walk up in there, and I got my sandals on, and I close the door, and I've got, like, my, I brought some stuff I need. And I get in there, and it's kind of like, because <sighs> I can see the walls. And so I go to hang up my towel, and my towel slides, and it hits the ground, and I'm like, no, but I'm doing it silently because I don't want anyone in this gym to hear me screaming out loud because my towel, and so now I have this unclean towel, and I'm like kind of propping it up there so I don't touch it. Anyways, I make it through the process, and I am like on top of the world. 
You would have swore I just, I'm Tom Brady after today's game, and I'm like, I'm going to the Super Bowl. And um, I walk out, and I've kind of got this strut because I just conquered a significant rational fear of mine about gem showers. And I walk to my locker, and I go to unlock it, and it's broke. And I'm standing there, and I'm covered with what the good Lord has given me, and then my underwear. And that's all I have. And um, I have this crisis moment. Because everything I own is inside of the locker. And it's just me and other naked guys. And, and I want to be like, um, okay, um, okay. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be stranded at this gym for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> I'm not about to say to the guy beside me, hey, I just had a, a really major life moment. <laughs> in the shower here, it was on a cloud nine, and kind of messed up with the locker, could you help me out, and he's like, dude, I'm not wearing clothes right now, like, who are you, because guys don't talk to other guys in the locker room when they're still doing their thing, and so I'm like, I'm straight up stranded in the locker room for the rest of my life, I finally worked through it, and as I can happily kind of say that the story concluded, I have not taken a shower there since, but I made it out, and uh, now we're close. And, and so that's a, a positive. But I remember driving away from the gym thinking, I am so glad that there is more to 2017 than just me having a better body or us having a better balance sheet in our checking account. That if this was all I was living for this year, just being healthier, probably a little bit wealthier, a little bit wiser, I, I, I don't know I'd be that content because that moment is just this really clarifying moment for me. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But here's what I think you and I both know, and that sometimes we forget that the people that we most respect, the ones who really make a difference, the ones who really are the ones that we admire the most, it's not that they made the best version of themselves. It's that somehow they made the world around them better. Isn't that right? The people that you admire most, it's not because they have the best body or the best checking account. The ones that we truly build monuments to, the ones that we tell stories about, the ones we look up to to be inspired are the ones who, in their lives, they make a difference in other people's lives. And in the midst of this series, Resolution, that's what we've been driving to. Is because God wants more for us than just something for us. He wants more for our lives than just for us to be a little bit healthier or happier, right? He desires for our lives to be bigger and more than just us. And we see that every time we are compelled by a story whose life, whose individual, whose sacrifice makes a difference. And what I want to do over the next two weeks is talk about that. Talk about how, not just how do we admire them from a distance, but how do we take this year in 2017 and have more than just a better body or a better balance sheet or a better career path, but to actually be part of making the world around us better. That's what I want. I imagine that's deep down probably what you want, but the question for many of us is not knowing the what, it's the how. It's like, how do I set about doing that? How do I use my life in this year to make the world around me a better place, or to make a difference in someone else's world. What I want us to do today is, over the course of this week and next week, I'm going to break it into two separate halves, is to look at the life of a man that maybe you've never read before, never even known it was a book in the Bible, 
If you're a non-Christian, if you're a person who's still not into the church thing and however you define yourself in the process of spirituality, this is the perfect week for you to show up. Because this guy, if you read throughout his book, there is no supernatural, there's no miracles, there's none of those things that might trip you up. It's just the story of a man who had something in his life that made a difference. And it's something that all of us, regardless of where we are in our journey with God and with faith, can actually take a step towards today. And here's a disclaimer, in this week and in next week, you may not be able to answer all the questions. The goal, in fact, is not for you to answer all the questions I'm going to ask you. The goal is for you to become aware of these questions. Because when the questions are in there, you start to become aware of what's happening out here. And by becoming aware of what's happening out here, you and I can start this journey that we see unfolded um, in the book of Nehemiah that we're going to read today. So if you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced earlier, you can, if you have, don't have it, you can download it at EncounterChurch.com backslash app. Um, we put the sermon notes, message notes, and the Bible. It's already preloaded for you. So if you want to click on message notes, you'll see the passages I'm going to read today. I'm not going to read a ton. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history context because it's important to understand what's happening around the life of this um, character, this man known as Nehemiah. Because it's 2,500 years ago. And 2,500 years ago can be really distant. But what I think we'll find over the course of this week and next week is that 2,500 years separated from us has some surprising parallels for today's life. And so uh, Nehemiah, let me give you a backdrop while you um, go ahead and click on the app. Nehemiah is uh, a Jewish man who's growing up in the period of time that historians call the Jewish exile. And here's the 32nd Jewish history of this time period. The nation of Israel was its own entity, its own nation, there were a people, and in the course of about 100 years, um, this nation that has split, both get defeated. The nation uh, state that's around the city of Jerusalem, which still exists today, these people were defeated by the Babylonians, and they were all carried back to Babylon. That's why it's called the exiles, because these people who've been living in a land have, have now been taken back to a foreign land. It would be as if we were invaded today by a foreign country and all of us were marched into boats and into planes and taken back to that land. That would be an exile. And that's what's happened to these people. So for that reason, Nehemiah is not growing up in the place where his family is from. He's growing up in a foreign land under a foreign king with people speaking a language that were not the language his grandparents would have spoken. Nehemiah is growing up in a whole different world. Nehemiah is really fortunate. For these people whose lives are really difficult, he's got a really sweet gig. He is the cupbearer, which means he is this really close confidant to the king. He's a guy that, first of all, to have been a cupbearer meant that he was really intelligent, that he was really good looking, that he was really articulate and conversational and, and really easygoing and, and would have been very relaxed to be around. All these things would have been essential. But he'd also had to be trustworthy because the cupbearer's job was before the king was given wine, the cupbearer would have to drink it to make sure no poison had been placed in it. And this is Nehemiah's like job every day is he drinks wine. And if it's poisoned, he dies so that the king doesn't. And as bad as that may sound for some of you, that's still a better gig than what the most, most of his people had going on in everyday life. And so Nehemiah is in the palace doing what he does. And in the midst of this, there's history happening around him. A king before his current king allows 50,000 Jews to go back to Jerusalem 
they, they begin this return to the city of Jerusalem. They start to rebuild things. And by the time Nehemiah's king steps into the throne, some, some bad things have started to happen. Nehemiah's king, the one he serves early in his um, kind of kingship, gets wind of them rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And so he stops it and squashes it with military force. So Nehemiah is working for a man who has literally stopped his people, stopped Nehemiah's people from rebuilding the wall. That's the context. That's the backdrop. And here's one other piece that you need to know. A wall is a really important thing in this day. We live in the day of deadbolts and security systems and alarm systems and gated entries. We, we have all these mechanisms in our lives. We have keys that all of us carry in our pockets. All of these things protect us from someone getting in from the outside while we're sleeping at night or while we're comfortable in our own homes. But in the ancient times, they didn't have those things. You couldn't stop someone. There wasn't deadbolts. There wasn't lock mechanisms the way they are today. And the way that a people protected themselves was when they would gather together, they would build a wall around the city that would stop invaders because every night the gate of the wall would be locked and armed guards would march around on top of the gate. We still see this today, right, in the Great Wall of China. That is a carryover from this idea that a wall is the best protective measure you can have as a people. And in Jerusalem at this time, there is no wall, which means security, comfort, right? The psychological and the physical safety of these people are threatened. And, and in steps this conversation, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, which tells us that Nehemiah is the writer of this, this specific um, book that we call the book of Nehemiah. In the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, and Susa is the winter palace um, of the king, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judea with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. And the remnant are those 50,000 who've traveled back that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is like, hey, catch me up. What's happening over there? And um, Hananiah, his brother, said to him, along with the others, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So his brother says, hey, things are actually really bad. The wall's gone. The gates, they've been burned. And the, the full weight of that, that these people, 50,000 people living in Jerusalem, are just sitting ducks for whatever military force, whatever kind of band of thieves that happened to run through. Imagine if you, every night you got in your bed and you had trouble sleeping because you weren't sure if, if it was wind rustling outside or if it was another group of band of thieves just waiting to break in and kill you and take your wife and your children away. Can you imagine the psychological weight you would have every night? of letting that just, you going to sleep, but you can never really truly sleep because you have to kind of sleep with one wide eye open because it could be your last night, just like that. And Nehemiah hears that report, and it says that he, when he heard these things, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is broken. His heart is shattered by what he hears. And this is where Nehemiah is. And this 
is a strange story and a strange place to start. But this is actually the starting point for us becoming like those people we admire from a distance. You see, oftentimes what we miss, and those people whose lives go beyond themselves and make a difference in those lives around them, is that oftentimes the starting point for that is that these people were paying attention to the tension they felt on the inside. That oftentimes what precedes a breakthrough, what precedes transformation and a world being changed is a broken heart. Which is not comfortable, is it? None of us want to sign up for a broken heart. But it's a broken heart that precedes breakthrough. It's the broken heart that precedes the passion that transforms a people or sets a subgroup free or changes a family for generations to come or changes someone's finances or their relationship. That it's a broken heart that's the starting point for a life that's more than just a better body and a better balance sheet. And that's what we see with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is broken by the reality of where these people are. And most of us, quite honestly, would prefer to avoid those broken moments in our lives. We would prefer to forget those really broken memories and painful memories that we carry. And yet, if you've ever sat in that chair or, or in your car or just while you're alone and wondered, what is my life meant for? What is it that I'm meant to do with my life? That oftentimes, it's your brokenness. It's your breaking heart that's the clue of what to do, which is part of the story no one talks about because it's not really attractive. It's not really fun sounding to say, hey, you want to make the difference? You want to transform the world? Where is your heart broken? But I'm serious. Read the letters of people who've come before us who've made a difference and read, read about what breaks their heart. That's what precedes it. Because there's something, there's something profound about what God can do inside of someone with a broken heart when he gives it to them. There's something he unlocks. And, and look, for some of us, it may not be something that stands out right now. But it's a question that we have to become aware of, of what breaks my heart. And here's the thing. I would encourage you, don't get caught up and judge how important whatever breaks your heart is. What's important is becoming aware of the tension that's in there. For a friend of mine, um, he wanted to adopt, but there were foster care laws that were going to prevent him and his family from doing so. And that, that broke his heart to see kids who he knew he wanted to bring into their homes, but he couldn't. And he set out and has literally changed the laws of the state he lives in to allow him to be able to adopt. Because there was something, it broke his heart to see kids stuck in a foster care system, to see them stuck in these homes when he knew he wanted to open up his home to them. He's like, how can I, how is this okay? And that breaking of his heart preceded the breakthrough that happened as a result. For another friend of mine named Katie, She was traveling in Africa and saw in these villages of Togo these women making beautiful gowns to help their family barely make ends meet. 
And Katie is a really fashionable girl. She knows what looks good put together. And she's walking through these villages and looking at families starving. And, and it's like, I know women back home that would pay so much money for these dresses. They're gorgeous. And these women are barely making ends meet. Their kids are starving. And it broke her heart. And she went back home and started a nonprofit that connects some of her friends who have means and resources to really cool, fashionable clothes that have a profound story that's making a difference. It's behind the coffee that you drink here at Encounter Church, where every time you drink a cup of coffee, you're helping to advance a mission in Rwanda where reconciliation is happening because someone, someone's heart was broken by a nation that was no longer in the center of the headlines, but was still in the middle of the aftermath of the genocide that occurred there. And he was burdened to see reconciliation, and he, he had a passion for coffee, and he starts a coffee farm that we regularly get reports from where people are working alongside of the very person who killed uh, this lady, for example, who's working alongside picking the cherries, the coffee, off the trees with the, with the man who killed her husband in front of her. And they're laughing and they're talking with one another, with one another, and there's forgiveness. All because his heart was broken by what he saw there, and he did something. It can be a something, I mean, it can be diverse. Sam Walton, who started Walmart, most of us don't remember this part of Sam Walton's story, but Sam Walton started Walmart because he had a burden. He, had a, he was deeply bothered by working, working class families who were barely making ends meet. And he said there should be a store that would allow them to buy the things they need to have a better quality of life at a cheaper price. And so he set about to start this whole concept of discount purchasing, of buying in bulk. But his end game, Sam Walton's end game all along, was to affect the lives of working class Americans so that they could have a better quality of life. That's what birthed Walmart. And that's why this question matters, because whether it's in the business realm, personal realm, whether it's national, international, or just community-centric, what breaks your heart matters. Because there's more to it than just what breaks your heart. And that's a question I would ask you. What breaks you? What stirs inside of you? What headline, what story, what situation? What is it that when you see it, it grabs you? That it's more than it just affects you in the moment. It somehow infects you and sticks with you. Because that's the starting point for us being part of making the world better in 2017. But there's a little bit more to the story. It's not just that we need to pay attention to the tension. This is a really brief point, but this is essential. Because I, like you, am probably bothered by a lot of things. I hate, can I just go ahead and have a little bit of a rant? I hate cable companies. All right, if you'd have been in my house this week when I was trying to get a cable company, internet company, I would call them. And I'm not going to use their name because I'm not trying to offend anyone personally. But I would call them. And I'm like, I'm calling you because I want to give you money. And it would be like, after like 17 presses, I mean, like they make me make more decisions in those telephone prompts than I make in the average day. It's like, 
If you're a tourist who enjoys long walks on the beach and would like to speak to a customer service representative, press 1. If you're an Aquarius who enjoys mountain moonscapes and unicorns, press 2. I mean, you're like, beep, beep, beep. You're keep, like, by the time I've like, pressed 15 times, I finally get to the prompt, and it says, oh, we're sorry. At this time, all of our customer service agents are busy. Thank you. Beep, beep, boom. Like the fifth time they hung up on me, uh, you can't even slam the phone down. You ever, you ever found that out? It's so frustrating. You can't, like, back in the day, man, when there was that cord and it was attached to the wall and you were angry, you'd be like, bam, like, yeah, I taught that computer something. With a cell phone, you're like, beep. And I'm not going to slam the thing down because that costs way too much money. So, like, the fifth time I look at my wife and I'm like, man, if I had more money, I'd go start an, insur- I'd go start an internet company just to see them drown. I was so fired up. I was so mad. And I'm like calling all these, and nobody cares about me and my money and my internet service. And it's just bothering me to the core. Bad customer service irritates me to no end. But yet, that's not what I'm talking about when I say it breaks your heart. That's just this bother at the surface level. What we see Nehemiah do, that this little tiny distinction in the story that's actually helpful for you and I is found in chapter 2. And for the original reader and listener, they would have seen it scream out at them. But for us, kind of separated by 2,500 years, um, the Jewish calendar runs um, separate from the Gregorian calendar that we operate on. So we don't even use the same months and the same structure. It was lunar-based, we're solar-based, all these different kind of factors at play. So when we read verse 1, of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, or Nisan, if that's how you want to say it, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. That would have screamed out at the original listener. The reason why is because Kislev and Nisan um, is actually separate. They're separate months. Nehemiah kind of hints at this in chapter 1, where he says, for some days he fasts, he mourns, he Fasting means literally not eating. So he's not even eating. He's weeping. He's mourning. He's not eating. He's been gripped by this grief of a city he's never been to and a people he's never even met. But something about hearing the walls in Jerusalem being down has broken his heart. And the difference between Kislev and Nisan is four months. It's a four-month time difference. Now, what makes a good cupbearer is that you're, you take action. You get things done. You don't second-guess when the cup's put in your hand. You drink it. You're a go-getter. You're someone who's trustworthy. And yet, for four months, this man who's a man of action doesn't do anything. And this, in fact, is actually the key to helping us discern, is this... Is this really my heart being broken? Because a lot of us can be gripped. We can be moved by a moment. All right? Something that's powerful, something that's tragic that unfolds in front of your eyes or that you read in a newspaper. But these, these special type of heartbreaks, these burdens, if you want to call them that, what makes them stand out is the fact that time doesn't erase them. Time doesn't make you forget about them. Four months, and the grief hasn't passed. It's still there. He's still burdened by it. 
he's still weighed down by what's happening in a place he has never been to with a people that he has never seen. It's this time factor. It's the fact that this tension inside of him is not going away. It's getting bigger. It's growing. And that's actually a critical, critical piece. Because all of us have had moments that have been painful. But it's those painful moments that don't leave us that actually give us a clue in what to do. I grew up without a father who, long story short, we really didn't have any relationship at all. I didn't even know about him until my teenage years. And I remember this fateful day coming home in my 20s from college. And this is the internet is kind of dawning at the same time. And um, it's AOL at the time. And my mom has reconnected with him. And I, I remember coming home and she says, hey, I've I talked to your dad, which is like, whoa. Um, she said, what would you think if, um, if he wanted to reach out to you? And I was like, okay, I'm a 20-year-old. I said, yeah, I've never talked to my dad, never seen him. And um, she was like, okay, I'll, I'll let him know. And so I got back to school, and he called, and we talked for 30 minutes. The first time um, as a 20-year-old, hearing my father's voice. It was very strange. And we talked um, and kind of chatted. He was pretty, pretty gifted, like, talker, like, find something we could agree on and then just kind of milked it for all it was worth. And at the end of the phone call, he said, hey, because um, he was a professional musician, he's like, I'm going to be passing through where you go to school, and um, I'd love to meet you. And I'm like, wow, like, yeah. He's like, would you be open to that? I'm like, of course I'd be open to that. At the time, I had hair, and I really wanted to know, will I keep hair? And, um, and so we, uh, we kind of said it. He was like, okay, I'll be passing through Thursday night. Um, hey, because I'm headed to a gig, it may be I'm leaving one late, and so it may be really late. Is that okay if I call? I'm like, yeah, man, there's an IHOP nearby. It's totally cool. Um, call me whenever. I'm a college student. That night, I remember going to bed, and it was like in the day of, like, the big cell phones, you know what I'm talking about, like, you know, and so I have that and a small transformer, power transformer, plugged into it so it can keep it charged the entire night, because these things had, like, 10 minutes of charge, and, um, and so it's plugged in, and I literally sleep with the phone beside my ear, and for those who know me, spend time with me, you'll see that I have this, like, tendency to twist, because I'm deaf in this ear. I can't hear anything. It's just there for looks and to hold up a microphone, and, um, but this is the ear I actually hear with. And so I slept with the phone right here because I didn't want to miss the phone call. And I woke up the next morning, and there was no missed call. And he did it to me one other time in the course of me being at college, and, and it broke my heart, just honestly. I mean, I was, like, decimated because as a, as a young boy growing up, wanting to know my father, like, here's the shot, this, like, moment I'd always hoped for. And he blew it up in my face twice. Man, and it, man, it broke my heart. And, uh, and then I got married, and the day that my wife told me she was pregnant. And all this stuff comes back up. All this stuff kind of leaps out and grabs me. And I noticed, I'd been in kind of working with students through a, about 10 years at that point, and I noticed that I seemed to have this, like, burden for kids who didn't have a good relationship with their parents. And I, I noticed I would get angry when I would see, especially fathers, like, have a kid who wanted to have a relationship with them. And 
for whatever reason, their father wouldn't. And it would just bother me at the core of who I was. And, um, and then there was this point right after Ella was born, probably about two weeks, three weeks after she was born. She was, it was her first time being kind of cranky, sick. And I stood up and I rocked her. And like Jenny was tired and I said, go on the bed. I've got this. And like, man, that girl like was just, and I was like, I'm, I'm not letting you go. And Jason Mraz's song, I, I Won't Give Up, just came out. And I'm just like singing it over her, like louder and louder, because that song was like this anthem I had adopted, because I'm not going to be the type of father that my father was to me. And I'm like singing it louder and louder, because I'm like, and I won't give up on us, even if the skies get rough. I'm giving you all my love. Right? I mean, and every time she got louder, I got louder. Until the point we were both screaming at the top of our lungs. I'm not going to give up on you. And I remember this point where she fell asleep in my arms, and it just hit me. Man, it hit me. I I wasn't angry at my father. When I talk about your heart being broken, I don't mean bitterness. I meant my heart broke because I realized he never had this. And there was not a check, there was not a bank account, there was not a job, there was not a stage that I would have traded that moment with that little girl for. Because in that moment, my love had quietened this little tiny human being. And and that moment kind of really redirected, and what I had coming out of that was a burden for fathers. I care about fathers, and I really care about fathers having a relationship with their kids. But that came out of me being okay to lean into that painful moment I experienced of being broken hearted multiple times by a dad who didn't want to have a relationship with me. And if you ever see me and Ella out and about, I probably won't see you. Because when I'm with her, she knows that I value our relationship. And if I'm hanging out with, when I was a middle school minister and I worked with middle school kids and I was hanging out, I wanted them to know that, look, I'm an adult and the relationship, you, you matter. And all of that was born out of this broken heart that had persistently, over time, gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. And I would ask you, to answer this question Go back to your most painful moment or the most painful period of your life. And I know that that's not something that you typically would like to do, but I'm telling you that oftentimes that period of our life, that moment in the break is often the very starting point for God doing something through us that we would have never planned or designed on our own. That it may be that there are nations, there are peoples, there are tribes, like my friend Katie discovered, that's lives where kids are eating today because her heart was broken by it. Because here's the challenge. Here's what we can miss in all of this conversation and that we'll come back to next week. That we can miss that sometimes there's a bigger narrative at play. There's something happening at the grander scheme that we can miss. Nehemiah's name, his name literally meant comfort of God. He didn't know what being named Nehemiah really meant until that time he allowed his heart to be broken by a people who needed comfort and he provided it. 
And what if Nehemiah hadn't leaned into that brokenness? What if he'd ignored those people or that pain? Then that city would have never been transformed and changed. And I think that's the humbling part is oftentimes God invites us into a solution by letting us feel the pain of the people stuck in the problem. And that this year, in 2017, instead of being a person who makes resolutions, instead of being a person who tries to get to a better body or a better balance sheet, that we stop making resolutions and start saying, God, I want to be part of the solution to that problem that breaks my heart around me. To be part of not just living for a better body or a better balance sheet because that's way too small to live for. But to say, I want my life to make a difference. I don't want to just be a better person. I actually want to help make the world a better place. And if you're willing to lean into that with me, then I would invite you back next week where we'll take that next step and we'll look at, okay, becoming aware of the tension within, how do we build on it? How do we move with it? And how do we do what we see Nehemiah does through it, of transforming the world around us?